Before we begin, a note of warning. The language used and the topics explored in this podcast are not suitable for listeners younger than 18. Your discretion is advised. From the Spade and Archer Studios, welcome to Behind the Yard Sign, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to reveal the real world of real estate with your hosts, Justin M. Reardon and Amy Romberg. Amy is the best. Here she is. So glad to see you. How are you, darling? <laughs> Justin, I'm doing great. Every once in a while, I, I see the cheerleader and you come out very strong. <laughs> just like, I just had this picture of you like kind of swinging your hips and clapping. And <laughs> I was out of the closet in college when I was a cheerleader, but our uniforms were like, uh, there was first off polyester pants, which is like hot, <laughs> but then not only polyester pants, but like Kelly green polyester pants with a Kelly green Ooh. top. So we look like giant Gumbies. And as if that wasn't cheesy enough, we were the University of Hawaii rainbows at the time. So there was like a big <laughs> rainbow across your chest. So I was like this bald-headed Care Bear Gumby just running around doing backflips. Like, I didn't look gay at all. No, not, no, not at all. Not a little bit. Not a little bit. Did you kind of sway your hips when you walked a little bit? Or I were you still do. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, thank you for that. That's a yeah. little gift. Not many people know this, but when you put polyester fabric against a very highly polished wood floor there is very little friction so if you happen to be doing a roundup back handspring layout and you land on your ass you then slide for like a good 15 feet i only know this from experience like in the middle of a basketball game yeah (laughs) it was pretty awesome (laughs) you know i bet there's a lot of things about cheerleading that prepared you for life generally like sometimes you just land on your ass and you slide and there's nothing you can do you're just going and if you if you wear egg on your face like if you look like yeah. you're embarrassed, then the whole audience is embarrassed for you. If you jump yeah. up and like throw your arms on there and be like, yeah, the whole yeah. crowd cheers with you. Like if you can be graceful yeah. around your losses, which is very hard to remember in real life, of course. But I think being graceful around your losses and, you know, it's sort of like the same idea of like when you accept responsibility for your fuck ups. I yeah. feel like that really that allows you to kind of keep your head up in the whole situation. Like yes. when you've made a mistake, yes. if you're like, oh, wow. I really blew that, didn't I? You apologize, you move on. Whereas if you spend all this time like trying to pretend like you didn't just slide on your ass across right. the gym floor. Everybody saw it. It gets real awkward real fast. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much sort of a reclaiming power when you're just like, yeah, I messed that up. I'm trying to teach my son right now. He's 16 going on 17. I'm trying to teach him about the, the power of apology and that it doesn't cost anything. Bless my stepdad's heart. Uh, he was always quick to apologize, but always gave what I call the backhanded apology, which is... Is like, I'm very sorry that you felt upset. Apologizing for somebody else's feelings. Like, I'm not yeah. apologizing for what I did. I'm sorry yeah. that you got upset about it. And yes. I gotta tell you, whenever I hear an apology like that, I'm like, please don't apologize for my feelings. Like, yes. there is a way to make an apology go really well. There is yeah. a way to make an apology go really badly. And I think yeah. I, I read this thing the other day that apologies has three steps, right? You apologize for what happened, you apologize for the way it made the person feel. And then you try to find out, like, how can I rectify this? And there are kind of three steps to it. And just saying, I'm sorry, it's not really enough. Like, how can I fix this for you? Like, clearly I screwed up and I'm so sorry that I hurt your feelings. That's the feelings part. Like, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. It's not, I'm sorry you got your feelings hurt. Your feelings were hurt. Yes, there's (laughs) a difference here. Yeah, Yeah, there's something about that that just, like, when I hear you say that, it just, like, kind of doesn't sound right in my brain. My brain's, like, trying to make sense of what that exactly means. It's just, like, not a clean shot through, is it? It's like, 
Not only are you apologizing for somebody else's feelings, you are now apologizing for their actions. And so ultimately the apology is from them to you. And so all of a sudden it turns around backwards and they're apologizing for something they didn't even do. And like, oh, it's the best way to make people mad. I think it's something that's so important, both personally and professionally. When you need to take a minute and say, oops, we really messed that up or oops, that didn't go right. Oops, I understood that differently. Like it's, it's so important, I think, to probably all of the transactions that you and I do with anybody to be able to really acknowledge when you've messed up and own it. We had a situation when we were getting ready to adopt. When you do an open adoption, you put together a website and kind of a brochure of your family and you say like, this is us, this is who we are. And we would like, please give us your baby, (laughs) basically is what it says. And it has like 800 number on it. It has your email address on it. It was the most I felt ever exposed because people could literally die right into my house and I had no idea who they were. And we received a phone call from this woman and she said that she was eight months pregnant and that her husband had stabbed her with a knife and she had six other kids and the story just like went on and on and on and got longer and Mm. longer and longer. And then every time I would ask any kind of a personal question at all, there would be like, you know, audible tears on the other side and she wouldn't answer for like three, four, five minutes at a time. Like I would would just like trying to like give her space, like give an answer or whatever. And then she eventually would like give an answer or she would say like, I'm not comfortable talking about that because I I want that. I wanted that baby. Like I wasn't going to push any further. Right. And so then it came down to that. Like she calls us and she's like, and so I had the baby two days ago. I've been in the hospital for two days and I'm jumping on a plane. I'm coming. We live in San Francisco. I'm coming to San Francisco. I'm going to be there in six hours. I'm going to hand you the baby. And we were like, oh crap, we should cancel our plans to go to Palm Springs this weekend because we have a baby on the way. So we canceled our plans. We were at the airport and we waited at the airport for almost five hours and she never showed up. And it turned out that it was a complete and total catfishing scam. Like she was not a real person. We Googled the name. It turned out that like, you know, this is, and this is 16 years ago. So, you know, Googling wasn't as Googly as it is today. We Googled her name and and she had been a known catfisher. This is before the term catfishing even existed. But, you know, thinking about it, the way that real estate agents have their lives set up, like your phone number, your email address, you know, everything about you is posted online and like ready to go. Mm -hmm. And people intentionally or not could very easily catfish you. And so how do you deal with a person and how do you get the feeling of like, oh, this is not real. This person doesn't really want a house. Like, what do those feel like for you? I've gotten definitely some random phone calls. I think so much of the work that I've done and and the folks who have used me have been people that I knew from someone or there was a direct referral source. Yeah, yeah. And that makes it so easy to know, like, I'm, I'm happy to meet somebody that's a friend of, you know, my neighbor Susan's because I'm not worried about, you know, meeting them at a house, even though I've never met them before you know, if we've done all the things that need to be taken care of before that, because they know they're a real person. And right. I mean, I think for me, the random phone calls I've gotten, and I'm sure folks who've been in this business longer than I have, have uh, honed this and also have probably had more opportunities to hone it, unfortunately. Yeah. I think it just comes down to like, sometimes you just get that hit, right? You get the phone call and you're like, something about what you're saying, something about your story, something about why you want to see this house. You know, it'll happen sometimes when you have a listing, you know, somebody's really wanting to see it. And I definitely had that happen on a listing a couple of months ago. But it was they they were not someone who was able to give me sort of complete information about what they were looking for and why they wanted mm-hmm. to see the house. And then mm-hmm. kind of the more I moved along with like 
well, you know, I wasn't going to show it. I was going to send the sign call to a colleague, but also didn't want to send a colleague into a situation. A crappy sign call, right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That That's no good either. So just trying to collect information. And when someone is really reticent to give you information, that for me is a pretty good sign or is, I don't know, somehow there was just something about it that wasn't making sense. The answers weren't going all the way through. Right. So somebody who's yeah. genuine, they have those answers like at their fingertips. You know, how much do you want to spend? Yeah. What neighborhood do you want to live in? Um, when are you looking to, to purchase? Do you own a house currently? Are you planning on selling it? Where's your down payment coming from? These are not complicated questions. No, but a catfisher yeah. has an awful lot on their mind because they're, number one, not only are they trying to answer your questions, they're also trying to play a role because they yeah. are not being who they are. And so those questions don't come as easily or as reticent. And there may be long pauses or they may say things like, I'm not comfortable talking about that right now. Um, mm-hmm. And if somebody says they're not comfortable talking about something that they shouldn't not be comfortable about... <laughs> Yeah. There's a problem yeah. there, right? Information information that you need to doing a real estate transaction with someone is definitely very personal. Yeah. There's an aspect of, you know, people's financial lives that you become privy to in certain ways. And and I think if someone is reticent to share information that you need to sort of make a transaction uh, flow properly and, and be successful, uh, I think that's a a pretty good indicator that something that something's off. Yeah. Um, David Policar is in the green room right now. We had Cirque du Soleil come in. He said he always wanted to try to do the high tra- the trapeze. So we had Cirque du Soleil come in. We couldn't fit him inside the green room because it wasn't quite big enough, but they did put up the blue and yellow tent outside the green room. And so he's in the blue and yellow tent. He's learning trapeze from Cirque du Soleil. I was like, you need to do the full thing, like tights, eyeliner, like, like make him feel like he's in the show. Yeah. I'm going to run yep. back and grab him. I think we should Great. talk to him about this whole catfishing thing because he's been doing this for a long time so oh absolutely um, i bet you he's got some ideas okay i'll be right back yeah great Amy, I would like for you to welcome to the show David Policar. David was in the green room. He was working with Cirque du Soleil doing trapeze artist training. David, what did you think back there? Was it fun? Better than anything I had hoped for. So thank you. Thank you so much. David, welcome. When I when I saw them putting that tent up, I couldn't believe they could fit a tent that size in the green room. So uh, that was amazing. Yeah, and I got to say, man, tights and eyeliner, that's your thing, man. It looks fantastic. Well done. <laughs> thank you, Justin. Thank you for that. All right, so David, how long have you been doing real estate, man? I've been in residential real estate in Portland for 17 years. What'd you do before that? I worked in high tech, kind of project management, customer service end of high tech. And you grew up here, right? You've got a brother and a sister, is that right? I, I do. I grew up in Southeast Portland, kind of close in Southeast Portland between Hawthorne and Division, if you're familiar, which I know you are. Where'd you go to school? I went to Cleveland High School. I went to the University of Oregon, graduated with a bachelor's of arts degree in English, spent a little time in Europe, went on a work exchange program and lived in London for uh uh, pretty much a year. So. so so you've got this English degree and you're in high tech. At some point, somewhere on the line, somebody says to you or you decide that you're going to go into residential real estate. Like, How did that transition happen for you? I've always been interested in real estate, but never thought I would actually become a realtor. Um, at one point, I had some friends say, gosh, you, you should go into real estate. And my response was, um, no way, I'll never do that. Too cheesy <laughs> and uh, no thank you. So I continued working at the time in high tech for the next 10 or 12 years growing a little more unhappy with that choice and finally decided to make a change and I never looked back. So You said you've always been a little bit interested. Like where did that spark come from or, or what was, tell me about the 
the interest level? I think it started from wanting to be more in control of my future, I guess, and preferring to own something and in, in versus renting if I had that option. And I, yeah. I'm fortunate enough to where I, I bought a little tiny place that was inexpensive at the time. And from the investment perspective, you were like, hey, this is a smart move. It might have been a little more dumb luck than smart move, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, well, you're, you're buying stuff on your own first. How old were you when you bought your first place? I was 24, maybe 23. And I bought a little, okay. I bought a little condo and somebody gave me the advice, get two bedrooms, not one, okay. so that I could get a roommate if I ever needed help with the mortgage. And I did that and it worked out really well. I okay. mean, that's pretty amazing at 24 to like have the wherewithal to pull that together. And whoever gave you that two bedrooms instead of one was very smart. It was good advice, wasn't it? Yeah, it was good advice. <laughs> it was. It was. Were you the first person in your friend group to buy a house? Because 24 is pretty early, right? I think I was. It was um, It was the mid-90s, early 90s. And I was. In fact, my friends made fun of me for committing to to a mortgage and tying myself down like that. <laughs> as, as, they, as they sat in my living room, they made fun of me. But that's what friends do, I think. So I was okay with it. At another point in your life, you know, you sort of get shit for not settling down and doing that. But at that point in your life, your friends were like, ha ha, look at that guy who bought a condo. (laughs) Those are the same friends who, you know, they made fun of me and then they asked for my advice. And then they're the ones who suggested I go into real estate to which, and I laughed back at them. So I guess we're even. Yes, absolutely. So what a progression. Um, so you recently started in a new office in, at, with Ware Real Estate. How has mm-hmm. that transition been for you? I did. I spent 16 years with a larger company. The transition has, has been a good one. It, it wasn't easy, but it was, a, it was a great move. And I feel very fortunate to be where I am. You know, there's always a few bumps, but it's, it's really a wonderful experience. It's, it's been great. Have you found that the, the David Policar brand, did it transition well? Like people are having a hard time seeing you. Have you did anybody freak out and be like, well, wait, that's not who I know you. I don't know you as where. I'm, are you still the same person? Like, did people treat you differently under a different brand? Justin, that's a great question. It's something that I was concerned about, and it probably gave me pause or gave me a reason to procrastinate about the change, but it didn't, it was not an issue whatsoever. My clients, my friends, everyone um, supported my move wholeheartedly and they were excited for me. And I probably should have realized earlier that that would be the case. And it it was uh, refreshing to find that that was their response. So I I feel very fortunate. Earlier um, in the podcast, when you were taking your trapeze lessons, Amy and I were talking about being catfished. I remember you and I had talked about a story once where a person was coming into town and there was a lot of touring that was happening. Can you tell us that story? Sure. I think um, as realtors, it's easy to get taken advantage of or for people not to maybe respect our time as much as we would like them to. She might have been my very first client. I say client in quotes, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I I would literally pick her up from the airport when she arrived to town and I'd take her to lunch in the Pearl District because she liked to do that. And I thought maybe that was one of the things I needed to do at the time. Uh, Then I would tour all the suburban areas, kind of every outlying area of Portland Metro that you can imagine, I think we visited and, um, and toured homes in. And uh, then I'd take her back to where she was staying and pick her up the next morning and repeat the process until a few days later, she would go back to the airport. And uh, my boss at the time, my, my boss at the time, he's currently my boss still, but he told me that this 
quote-unquote client would be my education, but she's probably not going to buy a home from me. And I I was bound and determined to prove him wrong. Um, inevitably, he was right, and it was a great uh, learning experience for me, and that was about it. How did he know that? Yeah. Did he ever tell you what? Because clearly he sort of understood something that was happening <laughs> bef- before you did. Right. did. Do you know what it was? Right. My boss, might he might be the smartest person I've ever met, and he's very intuitive, <laughs> and he started as my boss. He's the gentleman that offered me the, my first job in real estate, I guess. He turned into my mentor and a, a very good friend of mine. And, he, you know, and I, so I would um, tell him a lot of the things that I was doing in real estate and how I was handling my clients and the trials and tribulations, I suppose. So he knew a lot of details and he was able to say, all right, maybe we should um, be. Cut bait. Yeah, yeah, cut bait. Yeah. yeah. It happens in our office a lot. We'll get a, a price that comes in or a phone call that comes in and a client will have a a certain behavior or a certain cadence or a certain way that they write the emails. And to me, it's like a giant siren going off, like, you know, air raid sirens are going off and that like red flags are shooting up. And I'll say to one of my employees, like, okay, this is not, this person is not going to do a project with us. This is just somebody who's going to waste your time. Don't worry about it. Don't put any energy effort into it. And they look at me like, what are you talking about? Like, this is a, this is a lead. This is a warm lead. We have a chance with this person. Inevitably, it ends up being that like this person and doesn't end up doing anything, but it's only because of experience. So you just get a feeling and, you know, 17 years into it at this point, how do you know? Like what's your, when somebody calls you up and says, I want to buy a house, what are you, what's the first thing you ask them? What do you, what do you say to make sure this is not a catfish? Another good question. Um, I'll start by saying there was a time in my career early on where I would put anybody in my car and show them homes. I'd put somebody's dog in my car if I thought they could, you know, could purchase a home. And I wasn't confident about asking what I thought was were personal questions, you know, that maybe interpreted as none of my business. But with the experience that I've had and learning everything that I've learned in the last plus almost two decades. I have a series of questions and my preference is when I have a new client, when they call me up and say, will you be my realtor essentially, even though they don't quite say it like that. Ooh, ooh, let's role play. So Amy, call David, call David. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Justin, we make the telephone noises. Bring, bring. David, David, you're answering. Bling, bling. That's your phone. Sorry, it's not your ringtone. Sorry, my bad. Hi, this is David. <laughs> Hi, David. My name is Amy. Um, a coworker of mine gave me your your phone number, and I think that you helped her buy uh, that great house on Sunnyside Drive last year. And she just said that I should reach out to you. I'm thinking about thinking about buying. Amy, that's that's wonderful. Thank you for your call. First of all, I really appreciate you reaching out. I would love to talk to you about the process of buying and selling in Portland or my knowledge of the market and kind of understand what your what your approach is and what your goals are. First of all, maybe tell me, my first question is what questions do you have for me? But second of all, when is a good time for you and I to sit down in my office and have a cup of coffee together and kind of go over some details so that you and I can decide if we're a good fit to work together? Okay, pause. Oh, yeah. So right there. <laughs> okay, so number one, first question, let me see you in person. Okay, so let's just pretend like Amy's like, you know what, I don't really have time to come to your office and meet with you in person. What are you going to say to that person at that point, David? You you know, Amy, I'm not so sure that we're going to be a good fit to work together. Why don't you call me when you do have time so we can chat a little bit further. And I want to set this up so it's successful for you, but so that we're respecting each other's time mutually. Okay. So if the person is like, I want to meet you in a house by yourself with nobody else around (laughs) and hopefully I'll show up and it won't be a waste of time. And hopefully I won't be a mass murderer. You know, like, like, 
like, come to my office, grab a coffee with me when there are lots of other people that are around. That's, That's right. a really mm-hmm. safe space to grab a coffee with somebody. That is question number one. I love that. Okay, now you guys are in the office. Hi, David. Hi, Amy. How are you? Grab a cup of coffee. Sit down. What are you asking her? First of all, Amy, there's no stupid questions. So at any pro- point in the process, if you have a question, even if it's something that we've gone over a few times, please ask me again if, if, if it's not clear or if, if there's something else you'd like to know about it, and I'll be happy to re-explain. But I need to know... Um, some of the questions that I'll ask you are, you know, what's your fam- familiarity with, with homes and how, how well do you know Portland? Is there a specific part of town that you see yourself purchasing in? And um, do you know the difference between a 50s ranch and a craftsman home? Or how important is whether or not it's got a garage or a yard? Or, you know, do you see yourself in something lower maintenance like a townhouse or a condo? Or what's your experience so far? So I'd kind of start with those kind of questions. Do mm-hmm. you ever go into like, uh, how much do you want to spend on your house? How much do you have for a down payment? Are you pre-qualified? Those types of questions, like the hard dollar number questions. Absolutely. Uh, that, those are important details. And those are some of the questions that I used to be a little more um, hesitant in asking because it gets pretty mm-hmm. personal pretty fast. And truly, yeah. I don't I don't care if my clients are going to spend on the super entry level or the higher level, you know, purchase price. It doesn't matter to me. But they need to know what they're qualified for and what they're willing to spend underneath the number that they're qualified for because life is expensive and your car is going to need brakes and tires and you're still going to want to run to the coast for the weekend and you need to be able to breathe under the payment. Yeah. David, it's been interesting. I mean, I've been basically in this career since the pandemic started. And so I feel like for me, having coming in, sliding into this and having a lot of those, you know, remarks in private remarks, like clients must be pre-qualified to show like we, it seems like when COVID Hit, there was a lot of folks who slipped pretty quickly into let's not mess around with any of this. And so it's interesting because I feel like I've been lucky enough to just have that be a part of the conversation that I had to have with folks. So I didn't have to, I didn't go through that period of time where it felt awkward because those are awkward questions. But I started this this business when I had to ask those questions, you know, in the past year and a half. Because we weren't just taking Joe Schmo through 16 houses, all of us breathing on each other this past year plus. Now, there's going to be times when people don't necessarily know those answers. And Mm -hmm. then does it become your job to like help them figure it out? Or are you just, if somebody doesn't know, are you like, I'm out. You don't know enough to buy a house yet. No, and there's no wrong answer to any of the questions that I ask, especially when you're sitting in my conference room and having a cup of coffee with me. I just need to know what you know and what you don't know so that I know where to start Mm -hmm. the education process. And I think my job is Mm -hmm. to help educate my clients, whether they're buying or selling or whether they're super experienced and they've done a dozen transactions or if this is their first time out. I just want to know where our starting point is. And no, if they don't have a lender yet or if they don't know what it means to get pre-qualified, that's okay. I'll I'll help them figure it out. That's what I do and I'd love to help them figure it out. Not only are we dealing with buyers and sellers, we're also dealing with their representation on the other side. So other agents that we have to work with. Has there ever been a time when you have had to like call out or request another agent like, hey, please stop doing that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, you're, what you are doing is not helping this transaction. Has there ever been a, like, how do you deal with the other side? Because I mean, clearly there's no one person who's any more powerful than the other because you're both agents, like you're both representing your clients and the job is to try to get her done. So how do you do that? No two transactions are alike. And I think it's about communication and collaboration. And um, first of all, I don't represent buyers 
on my own listings. And the reason is I like to only negotiate for one side of the transaction at the time. In Oregon, that's legal. In some states, it's not, correct? The state does allow, uh, it's called dual agency, you know, representing both a buyer and a seller on the same transaction. It is legal according to the state of Oregon. Do you see it done successfully? It just feels like it would make me so stressed out. Um, I would say I see it done a lot and I know it's possible. I don't know. I don't know how it's done successfully. I feel like somebody's going to get left in the dark and I'm not comfortable with it. And I sleep really, I sleep well at night and I want to keep sleeping well at night. So (laughs) it's important. Yes. Where where I see it happening a lot is like, if there's a, um, a a suburb that's going up and they're putting in 50 houses and there's kind of an agent who is the rep for the builder who will also rep the buyer. Now, of course they're selling 50 houses for the, for the builder. So they're going to represent that builder, like, you know, pretty tightly one buyer, one time, see you later. Nice to know you. you (laughs) (laughs) So, but I do, see that a lot where you walk in and like, I'll take care of this entire thing for you. So it seems like a one-stop shop. It, it does seem yeah. very common in that situation, especially, but it's it's common out there elsewhere too, definitely. But as far as the change, uh, I did, I was thinking about it while we were talking about that. I had clients showing up at a home that I was, that was agent and company and the agent, I had gotten there a couple minutes early. I, I tend to like to park away from the, the home that I'm showing so that my clients can get a feel for it as they pull up because their feeling is part of the process. And the agent got there, my clients were running late and he parked kind of front and center, kind of blocking the whole driveway. Um, and so we went inside and we were chatting, waiting for my clients who were probably 15 minutes late. I asked him if he would mind moving his car. <laughs> his response was kind of, what are you talking about? And I explained that it's my preference that the buyers feel like they're coming home as they're thinking about spending a lot of money on this home versus feeling yeah. like they're coming to visit him. He was very gracious and he said, what a great idea. Um, it never occurred to him. So I was grateful that he was receptive to that suggestion. Oh, so. and that might've been like a little gift for him going forward because I do think that's, I think that's a wonderful perspective. I love this idea. I'm just picturing this car kind of gently pulling up in front of this house and you know, it does, it elicits a really different feeling than when you're, you know, half a block down the way, <laughs> trudging in front of the neighbors, <laughs> right. you know, moving trash yes. cans. And yeah. I mean, it's one of our huge parts of, of home staging is that we, don't ever put up like family pictures because we don't want people to feel like guests. We don't even on the walk-off mat, like where you wipe your feet off at the front door, we do not put the word welcome because you say welcome to a guest. You don't say welcome to a homeowner because it's their home. And so we're not really trying to make them feel like a welcome guest. We're trying to make them feel like they live there. By the way, also David, very, very good realtor safety tip there. Don't park in the driveway because somebody else can box you in and you won't be able to leave. Parking on the street, you can always get away. So very, very good idea not to park in the driveway for many reasons. Thank you for that. I didn't even think about that, but you're absolutely right. I agree. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we just had another realtor death like last week. Uh, the older gentleman that bought a house and felt remorse killed himself and his real estate agent. So it's a dangerous world out there. We're going to take care of ourselves. Now, hopefully you never had as bad a day as that guy had, but tell us about like your hardest day in real estate. It's not easy what we do. In fact, I remember a friend of mine saying, I, th- I think I need I need to make some easy money. I think I'll go into real estate. And, and my, my response was, uh, you do that. Let me know how that works out for you. And, um, yeah. yeah. Um, our, our industry is a lot of things. There's plenty of adjectives. I, I wouldn't use easy as one of them. Um, I, I, early on, I remember having... It might have been my very first transaction. It was a referral from a colleague who wanted a larger refer- referral than I 
knew was maybe appropriate, which was fine. We, we did that. And I think I showed those clients every house in Southeast and Northeast Portland for probably about five or six months. And, and they, they finally <laughs> bought and I was thrilled about it. But by the time I paid the referral and split with the company, it was, I, I think, I think it came out to be about $300 in commission for the, those six oh. months, which was a little painful. Um, but that said, they, they turned into wonderful clients and very good friends. And I'm very grateful for that experience. But 300 bucks for four months of work. Easy money. <laughs> right. Easy money. <laughs> might have been at one point, my question might have been, what am I doing exactly? Why am I doing this? So with referral fees, is that usually something that is, is a flat dollar amount? Is it a percentage of the commission? Is it like, how do those usually work? It's a percentage. Our office policy is a percentage. It's based on whether it's a buyer or a seller. A buyer, it's a little bit higher of a percentage and a seller, it's usually a little bit lower, but it's pretty similar. Tell us about your best day in real estate, the day that you were like, I, David Polakar, was literally born to do this. I feel so lucky. I feel like I literally work in a candy store and the people, it sounds so cliche, but the people are truly the, the favorite part about my job. Yes, it's mm-hmm. it's fun to make the kind of money that we make. Of course, I won't deny that, but I get to work with my friends and family and their friends and family. And, and I just feel incredibly lucky to do what we do and to have my clients trust and um, to negotiate on their behalf and to have every day different than the day before and constantly learning and constantly out there meeting different people and, and sharing my experiences in it. And I just, I feel incredibly lucky. So yeah. 17 years of good days, baby. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> okay. That, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but something like that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what is the best way for folks to find you, David? Uh, my cell phone number is probably the first best in my email address. So my cell phone number is 503-504-5200. And, uh, and my email is david at davidpolakarpdx.com. David Polakar is a real estate agent in the Portland area with Ware Real Estate. David, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Justin and Amy. This is, this is a lot of fun. Lovely to see you. <laughs> you too, Amy. Amy, David Polakar is awesome, right? Wonderful. He's <laughs> really a, a lovely human. So much respect for him in this business. He's he's back there again. He's working with the Cirque du Soleil folks, and he is doing really good. I've never seen like a dude in his forties like pull out a triple back. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. and well clearly done. not afraid of heights. Like that's amazing no. to me. <laughs> no, not at all. So one of the things that we were talking about him is like, what do you do when the agent on the other side is like not helping the cause. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> first off, what is the relationship of the agent on the other side to you? Like, you know, we got first cousins, we got friends, <laughs> we got hunting buddies. How do you refer to the agent on the other side? What do you call them? I don't know. Is there a term for that, Justin? I don't know. The Fr- I guess what frenemies, comes- yeah. nemesis. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, except also like you are totally dependent on that person to like you are both trying to move this transaction across the finish line. So like it's your like your co-broker, let's call him that. Yeah. Co-broker. The person if you were listing the house or somebody else would be like your co-listing agent, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're co-listing this. So so co-broker. We'll call it your co-broker. Yeah. Okay. So you're trying to get a deal yeah. done. Mm-hmm. And you ever had a situation where like your co-broker is just like kiboshing the whole thing. They're throwing monkey wrenches left and right. Yes. And I just actually um 
had the opportunity to really think about how important that relationship is. I had a, a listing went pending over the weekend, so I've just had lots of activity. Thank you. It was a great house. It's, it was, yeah, it was the house. The house was remarkable. But I had lots of conversation with other agents over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And there's really such a variability in terms of how we present ourselves. And it just gave me pause. It gave me a really, um, a moment to really think about the ways that we serve and then also the ways that some folks don't serve their clients. Like I had an offer land in my inbox with no communication. Like I didn't know who the guy was. I, I mean, he showed the house. We had no conversation whatsoever. It was not an offer that was ever going to be in the running because of where the price landed on this one. And I sent him back the, basically the rejected offer and still just like crickets, crickets. When I got the offer, I said, Hey, you know, thank you so much for this offer. I just want to let you know, you know, we're significantly above this price wise now and sort of expected he would reach out and have some conversation, but there was just no, there, there was nothing. So I just sort of made me think about his clients on the other end and do they know that he's not serving them well? Well, you know, there's a couple of things going on here, right? So number one, David Bolokar had mentioned that like somebody had said, this is really easy money. Well, <laughs> there is a, there's a very low threshold of entry yeah. in this business. Like take a test. Yeah. Like you, you, you pass the test. Good job. You are now officially a real estate agent. There's a very high threshold of success yeah. in this industry. And so, you know, by, by Peralti's rule of eight to two, 80 percent of the agents only do 20 percent of the work and 20 percent of the agents do 80 percent of the work and so every once in a while you're going to get an agent that is just that 80 percent that's only doing 20 percent of the work yeah and i think in in real estate may even be higher than that i think it's more like 90 10 yeah where you have 10 percent of the real estate agents in the city are doing 90 percent of the transactions and so of course we try to work with those folks because they're the ones who are actually getting things done yeah there's also the other side of things where we have a lot of different fees associated with uh, with buying and selling. And so real estate fees can go anywhere as low as 1%. Like, you know, yeah. I think Redfin says 1% and they could go all the way as high as like 3 or 4%. And so, you know, if you're going to make a couple hundred bucks and you're listening to that says like, I will submit an offer, I will not follow up, I will not write any communications, yeah. I will not do a counter offer, you've yep. only do a counter offer, you'd pay me more. These people may be very much aware of yeah. what they're getting or not getting in their agent. But I mean, you get what you pay for. I am often compared yeah. to like, bargain basement stagers. Yeah. Well, this guy says that he'll stage this house for a third of what you'll do. Great. Okay, well, <laughs> he'll also put a third of the month's furniture in there. So, yeah. you know, good yeah. luck with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you get what you pay for. And that is the same thing with real estate agents. Okay, so yeah. this guy didn't do a thing. So... Yeah, I mean, I guess that's just one example. I didn't really feel like there was much for me to do there. But I, I think your initial question was related to like, what happens when you're in contract with somebody and it is not going well? Ideally, you have two agents that are communicating regularly with each other and that are communicating regular with the, you know, with their clients and it's all coming back and, you know, it's all on the table and everybody's sort of working towards the same end goal, which is to get off the finish line, but I, <laughs> to get yeah. across the finish line, <laughs> yes. not off the finish line, to get across uh, the finish line. You know, we have had, we've worked with these agents before where they do not see themselves as a real estate agent. They see themselves as a lawyer. And a lot of times a lawyer's job is to make it so that their client wins. Yeah. 
And a real estate agent's job is to make sure that the transaction closes. Yeah. And we have had people that have like just like jumped down our throats or like blamed us or thrown us under the bus as the home stager. And we're like, dude, we're on the same team here. Yeah. <laughs> we're working for the same client. Like, I would never say that about you in front of them. Please yeah. don't say that about me in front of our client. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And, and like, you know, how do you gracefully tell your co broker, like, Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> Stop doing that. <laughs> this doesn't line up exactly, but I, I actually think that one of the most difficult interactions I've had in since I've been doing this work was with a mortgage broker. And he and I obviously had the same client. She had worked really hard to get her finances together. She was a first-time home buyer. We were both really excited for the fact that she was going to be able to purchase a home. And he and I just struggled. And I felt like he was t- periodically mansplaining and telling me how to do my job. Which yeah, for does, all the ladies out there, yeah. mansplaining is when a man explains to you something <laughs> that you already know, just in case you didn't know that yet. Okay, go ahead, Amy. Thank go you, ahead. Justin. Thank you for yeah, that interlude. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was deeply appreciated. <laughs> um, I finally, actually, so your question to your question, what do you do about it? I called it out. I said, "Hey, we are not working well together. This is not working for me. I know I'm not working for you. We both want to get her across the finish line. How can we get there?" And I said, "I I don't need you to tell me how to do my job. I." I am working. I am making decisions based on what our mutual client wants. I sort of just yeah. stopped and set the stage. And that probably went as well as it could. I think at least it, we called it out and it was out in the open. And he knew I wasn't happy. I knew he wasn't happy. I don't think we were ever going to fully recover from that. So I would work hard to not have to do a transaction with him again. And sometimes right. we don't get, you know, obviously if somebody is if I have that, uh, an agent, you know, I'm representing a buyer and my client wants to go look at a listing and it's with somebody I haven't worked very successfully with in the past, like we're sort of, you know, shit out of luck there and need to put it together. I mean, I think that's where being a person who can rise above things and, and be professional is really important because. Oh, huge. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Only this year did we include in our pricing a part that says we, we reserve the right to refuse to work with anybody. Like, if we don't like you and and you're mean to us, we're just going to say, no, we're not going to work with you. Because like on vendors like mortgage brokers or home stagers or cleaning people, if they don't treat you or your client right, you can just choose not to work with them again, right? Like you can just be like, I'm not interested. We do the same thing. If we have a listed agent that we just don't don't get along with, that we have the same work ethic, we're just like, you know, I'm sorry, we're just not able to serve you. But what's tough about the co-broker is that if they've got the best offer, you're you're going to take the best offer in your client's interest. You know, if you've got two offers that are exactly the same and you bring it to your client, you're like, these offers are exactly the same. This guy is a total jerk and this guy is an absolute pleasure to work with. Yeah. Um, you know, that can be a deciding factor um, yeah. if that broker's, that broker's deal gets accepted or not, right? Yeah, it's so tricky with that, right? Because it's really my job to keep my shit out of the, the transaction. So yes. is it good for, I mean, maybe if they were exactly the same offer... I might say, hey, um, I feel like this, you know, this person might be the one who get a close. Yeah. Yeah. I would mm-hmm. look for some mm-hmm. way to say it. I mean, it is tricky sometimes because, you know, you, you do, I think as an agent, sometimes have interactions with folks on the other side that you have to just, you got to button that up. 
you got to just keep it because once a transaction goes sour for one reason or another, like once the buyers start to feel that the sellers are taking advantage or vice versa and you're representing one or the other side, it is so hard to come back from that. And we've had we've had real estate agents that have come through and they've done instant pricing after instant pricing after instant pricing after instant pricing. And there came a point where it's like, okay, you've done a hundred instant pricings, you've done fifty side visits, you've never actually oh. hired us. We've never actually yeah. been paid for a transaction. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. Just stop it. Go go waste somebody else's time, please. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's it, but when with a with a co-broker, that's the you're, name we've decided on today. Yes, you're, you're in the boat. You're working with who you're working with. You're yes. in, there's no way out. And you know, this is a small town. Yes. And you know, if that Peralti effect is is correct, you're looking at let's say that there's 5,000 agents in Portland metro area, yeah. looking at 10% of those agents actually do the work. That's 500 people. Yeah. So, inevitably, you're going to be working with the same people over and over and over again. This is a small business and a small yeah. community and a small town. Yep. And you best not burn those bridges, man. If, once you get a bad reputation in this town, it's never going away. No. Like it is sticking with you oh. forever. And sometimes I'm not sure that agents realize how important that is. You know, the ones that are good do. You know, and sometimes it's related to who's buying and who's, you know, who's representing because we've been in such a seller's market. You know, you have the seller's agent who sort of theoretically thinks that they have, you know, more control of the situation and then the buyer's agent sometimes. and But then, you know, at some point that switches. At some point you're like, oh, you're the one who never called me back when I put that offer in. Like now mm-hmm. you're calling me and trying to get me to communicate with you. And I definitely got to rise above it. You've got to do whatever is, <laughs> whatever is in the best interest of your client always because you yes. have a fiduciary responsibility there for sure. And right. then there's the other side of it where I had so many lovely phone calls over the weekend with people who were just like trying to do the best for their clients and doing the work in the same way that I was. And that part of the job, I think, if you're someone who's fed by connection with other humans, like when you talk to another lovely agent and, you know, their dog's barking in the background, all of a sudden you're chatting about dogs momentarily. Like it's just a moment of human connection. Grace is one of our four core values. We have graceful, adept, tenacious, and thoughtful. And grace is the one that all of us struggle with the most because it's something that you are, it's all, you always have to be conscious of it. And we figured out that there's two forms of grace. There's outward grace and there's inward grace. Mm. Like, how are we outwardly so graceful with people? Yes. And how do we provide people with grace so that they can have their moment to yeah. you know, be a total butthead because they had a rough day because their friend committed suicide today yeah. and they're just having a rough day and they really just literally can't deal with you right now. Yeah. And it's so, that is the really, really toughest one when somebody treats you with disrespect and you have to take a pause at a moment just to be graceful, to allow them that space and be like, hey, yeah. Are you okay? Yeah. Can I help you with anything? Is there anything you want to talk about? Because this isn't how you usually act, you know? Yeah. It's a really tough thing to do. And I think that that being a good co-broker comes down to that grace in, grace out. Yep. <laughs> Both totally. ways, you know? Yeah. Uh, those core values are tough, man, because it's it's not only what you think you are, but it's also what you strive to yes. be. And so, <laughs> yes. you know, when you identify those core values and you try to live up to them every day and every once in a great while, and sometimes even more often than you think, you don't live up to your core values. Yeah. And when you have them just well-defined in four really basic words, you very quickly realize like, ah, I wasn't graceful. Yes. <laughs> that was not tenacious. Yes. That wasn't, I, that wasn't what I brought today. Yes, yeah. exactly. But exactly. I love that you have that overarching sort of moving towards that, you know, the difference between like a value and a goal is, 
you know, a goal is something you achieve. You There's a beginning, middle, end. You get there. Value yeah. is like that thing that you're always moving towards. And I, I think that's yeah. I think that's All great. of our goals are based off of our core values. Like all of our goals align with our core values, but goals are much more short-term, whereas yeah. our core values are something that are with us forever. They're like our eyes and our ears and our, our hands and our toes. Yep. You know, that no matter where you go, you take those core values with you every day. Yep. Amy, what's the best place for people to find you? I am at amyromberg.com. Our guest today, was David Policar. He's with Ware Real Estate here in Portland. You can find him on the interwebs and he gave his phone number earlier in the podcast. You'll be able to find him, I'm sure. Amy Romberg is a real estate agent here in Portland with Windermere. Amy, it's always such a pleasure to chat with you. Our theme music is written, composed, performed, the whole thing by Joff Metz. You can find it at fivestarguitars.com. My name is Justin Reardon. I'm with Spade and Archer Design Agency. We are always looking for new stories out there. Thank you so much for all the folks that have reached out. It's been quite a journey doing this podcast, we'd love to hear your story. If you've got something interesting to tell, pipe up because these new agents and people who are considering going into real estate, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at spade-archer.com. Just click on the podcast link, reach out to us. We look forward to hearing from you. We'll see you next time. Behind the Yard Sign. This production of Behind the Yard Sign was brought to you live from the Spade and Archer Studios. Spade and Archer Design Agency is the world's first guaranteed home stager.